Hi, welcome again to our USCCA Ask an Attorney webinar. I'm Kevin Michalowski, editor of Concealed Carry Magazine, and I am not the attorney. <laughs> this is our attorney, Tom Grieve. Tom, thanks for coming again. It's great to see you. Always great to be here, Kevin. We are talking about travel and such today, and we've got a bunch of questions that we can answer. So I'm, I'm already starting to think that we're going to get some repetitive answers about this. Yeah. Um, as we start in, we'll let people know that we have a great website out there, uscca.com laws, and that is our reciprocity map and a listing of all 50 state laws out there. We're, we're uh, really uh, directing people over to that, and we update it as often as we can whenever something new pops up. So um, think about that when you're asking questions about state laws. We've got that resource for you out there. Again, it's uscca.com laws. So let's jump right into the questions. And this one's pretty amorphous. What do I need to know about interstate travel while carrying a concealed weapon? Wow. <laughs> what you need to know is everything about every state that you're going to go through. Um, that, that's the, the easy answer. Um, it's a patchwork of laws out there for different states. And what you need to know about that is where you're starting, where you're going, what permit you have, and where that permit is good. So I would refer you to the concealed carry reciprocity map as the first place to start. Um, th this question doesn't really give me enough information to answer. You know, I'm driving from Maine to Florida and I'm going through New Jersey. That's a, a completely different question. But right, and you know, the big thing at my end that I would want to emphasize is the questions asked, and I'm going to be a lawyer here, but it's going to be so important because you guys need to be thinking like lawyers too, all right? The question asked, what do you do if you're going to be carrying what's going on here, all right? Not transporting, and that's going to be a key distinguishing factor. If you are going to be transporting a firearm, the laws are going to be different as opposed to if you are carrying a firearm. Carrying a firearm implies that it is within reach, maybe it is loaded. It is basically something that does not trigger the transporting statutes. Kind of the easy way to think about this as a general rule of thumb is that unless you are meeting the transportation criteria, you are probably going to be considered to be carrying. What does that mean? Well, in order to, generally speaking, meet the federal weapons laws, uh, the Federal uh, Firearm Owners Protection Act uh, for transportation, generally speaking, your firearm's going to need to be unloaded, encased, and it's going to need to be in the trunk or out of reach or inaccessible as best as possible. So again, unloaded, encased, in trunk, if you have a trunk area, if you don't have a trunk area, then as inaccessible as possible. So if it doesn't meet that criteria, then there's going to be at worst, or pardon, at best, a strong argument by the state prosecutors, if not federal prosecutors, that you're actually carrying. And now you have all the different carry laws. But otherwise, if you're transporting, and if you're just passing through a state, you're not dwelling there, you're just passing through, um, then hopefully you'll be falling underneath the transportation laws. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. And, and, and it depends on what kind of law enforcement officers and, and prosecutors you're going to run into uh, when, you, when you get to those yeah. states and, and in those stages. That leads us right into the next question. I heard it can be difficult to travel through some states and even illegal to stop and grab a bite to eat because of the state and local laws. Um, yes, it can be. And there are some places, um, New Jersey is uh, infamous for this. Um, if your state happens to tie your concealed carry permit to your driver's license, as they do in Florida, and you're driving with Florida tags through New Jersey, and you even a minor traffic violation, they might decide they want to search your car and look for that firearm that is tied to your driver's license ind indicator you know, in Florida. They run the, they run the uh, license plate, and it shows this person is a concealed carry permit holder. Well, now they have one reasonable suspicion to stop you. You've committed a traffic violation. And it says you're a concealed carry permit holder. Guess what? He might decide to pull you out and search you on the side of the road. 
What happens to that? Right. Well, number one, your day just got ruined. Um, that's yeah. almost certainly going to be happening. But here's something that's important to keep in mind. And before I delve into that, let me start with one thing. I'm a for former state prosecutor from the state of Wisconsin, and I'm a practicing criminal defense attorney in, in the state of Wisconsin. Um, I'm the lead attorney at the largest criminal defense firm here in the state. What does that mean? What am I trying to say by that? It means I'm not a New Jersey criminal defense attorney, all right? So I'm operating off of what I've been reading, what I've been hearing, and what I hear through kind of the, the grapevine that I'm plugged into here. Um, my understanding is how it functions in a lot of very hostile anti-firearm states, particularly probably New Jersey being number one leading the way, New York being another big one, is that when if, let's say, let's go back to that example, Somebody gets pulled over for speeding. Somehow, some way, they find a firearm in the car that you are arguably just lawfully transporting. You're not dwelling in the state. You have no intention to stay for the night, stop for food, stop for whatever. You're just passing through on your way to whatever valid destination where your firearm and everything is lawful. You're unloaded. You're encased. You're in the trunk. We'll say you have a trunk. It is yeah. in the trunk. So you're, you're meeting all the criteria. You're checking every box. But somehow, some way, you find yourself getting arrested. My understanding is to how it is sometimes going down in those states is that basically they are considering the Firearm Owners Protection Act regarding the laws surrounding transportation to be what we call an affirmative defense or privileged defense more or less in court. What does that mean? In other words, you can be charged with a crime, invariably a felony, uh, and you're going to have to go out and hire a defense attorney, hire a defense team, you're going to have to do all that kind of stuff, you're going to be making trips, missing work, all that kind of stuff, posting bail, you name it. And you can raise it as a defense that you were just transporting the firearm. Something that you hear as a phrase, and Kevin, I'm sure you've heard this too, in the criminal justice system is you can beat the charge, but you can't beat the ride. Which is to say that, you know, even if you are proven right at the end of the day, you will have exhausted a lot of money, time, energy, resources, stress. You may have burned through a job along the way with all of your sick days missed and everything else. Let me be emphatically clear. No one here is saying that that's fair. No one here is saying that's constitutional or right. But you do need to know that this kind of stuff happens out there. And you do need to know that you could be doing everything lawful. And if you're passing through particularly one of these states like New Jersey, New York, and so forth, um, these places have reputations among the Second mm -hmm. Amendment community of being very problematic states to be passing through. Yeah, and part of the question was, um, how can I get through them without driving all the way around the state? Maybe you can't. Maybe you have to just avoid that state altogether. Um, certainly, if you're driving through that state, don't do anything wrong. Um, you know, I, I live by an old saying, never break two laws at the same time. You know, if you're going to be speeding, don't have marijuana in your car because, you know, you're breaking two laws at the same time. Um, so if you have a gun and you're passing through a state that is decidedly anti-gun, make sure you're not speeding, make sure all the lights on your car are working, make sure you signal for every lane change, make sure you do not draw attention to yourself in any way and get through that state as quickly as you can. Don't stop for food. If you have to stop for gas, make it quickly. Um, Tom's right. It's not fair. It's not decent. It's probably not even constitutional, but it does happen. So you need to be aware and you need to avoid that problem. Unfair things happen to good people all the time. They're not always avoidable, but this is something where you can at least mitigate your chances of having it happen to you. And we deal with this a lot. I get a lot of these questions. As a Wisconsin attorney, um, we've got, of course, Chicagoland, Illinois to our south. 
And unfortunately, it's not uncommon to hear about hunters maybe trying to travel out west or whatever it might be, getting hassled trying to go through Illinois. And I know a lot of folks who routinely make that sh the, the trip out there for events like SHOT Show and SARS Show and all this other kind of stuff where they, they gas up at the border before they cross into Illinois. They don't touch anything that's gonna make them need to go number one or number two. And they are setting the cruise control right at the speed limit until they cross into whatever other state that is. Because otherwise, oftentimes, let's face yeah. it, it's not practical to go around states every time. So what Kevin said is absolutely true, is if you're in a vulnerable category, it may not be fair to you that, let's face it, you're going the actual speed limit, not the five to 10 over speed limit. Yeah. but. It is what it is, and if you want the best way of dealing with it, that's the best way of dealing with it. Absolutely. Next question up is, I know I'm not allowed to take my gun into the post office, but what about the parking lot at the post office? And the easy answer is, nope, nope, nope. It's a federal law. Can't take your gun into the post office, can't have your gun in the parking lot of the post office. Those are just the rules set up there by the post office. So park on the street and walk into the post office. Um, don't use post office property, don't, don't do anything at the post office with your firearm. Right, so. so to be explicit, we're talking about technically it is a crime for you to be even leaving it in your vehicle if you're parked in the parking lot. You can't be taking any of these different areas. Yes, these laws have been tested, these prohibitions have been tested since DC versus Heller um, in 2008, and yes, they have been upheld. They've been turned down by the U.S. Supreme Court, so technically the U.S. Supreme Court has never directly addressed this issue, but they've indirectly addressed this issue by failing to um, uh, overturn the circuit court's decision. So for the time being, right, just understand that if you're going to be dropping off mail at the post office, you either have to park off property, so not in the U.S. Postal Office parking lot. You've got to be parking off property and leave your firearm lawfully stored uh, in, your, in your home or you have to be going entirely uh, with, with, no, with no firearm there, if you're gonna be compliant with that law. Yeah, um, yeah that's, and, and it's a federal law. It's, it's right. something that, that all over the place, you have to deal with that one. So um, next one up is carrying in a commercial vehicle, a truck driver, and something uh, this, this uh, man, Jake, says he hasn't been able to get a straight answer on. We're probably not going to give you a clear answer on this one either. Um, all the same rules apply and probably company policy of whoever owns the truck. So um, talk to that a little bit. What should truck drivers really be thinking about? So here's, here, I'm gonna make what is sound, may sound like kind of a cut and dry issue of, well, look, we've got the Firearm Owners Protection Act, this federal law saying if we transport, we're doing this, we're doing that. But let's face it, um, a lot of truck drivers, they may be a sleeper truck, that may be home for them. So is it a dwelling, is it a transport, is it a vehicle? You've got a lot of lines kind of crisscrossing, and on top of that, we also have a lot of different laws crisscrossing. We have federal laws, we have state laws. In states where there's no state preemption law, in other words, uh, a state where perhaps a county or a municipality is allowed to pass a very restrictive firearm law that does not exist at the state level, um, unless you have a state preemption law, which preempts local municipalities from doing exactly that. So it keeps everything more uniform. So keep in mind, truckers may have to be dealing with going through counties or cities or villages or towns and so forth where, I mean, can you imagine going through, I mean, Wisconsin's got 72 counties. Can you imagine going through three different Wisconsin's a day and having to be familiar with all the different areas you may have to go? Uh, I suppose it's navigable if you have a particular route that you commonly drive, but good luck otherwise. What Kevin just said is absolutely true, which is the fact of, look, you have to be lawfully transporting. Uh, that's the safest way of doing it, meaning that it has to be lawful from where you're coming from for your, to your ultimate destination, and really you, you shouldn't be dwelling anywhere in between. That's the safest thing to be starting at. Everything beyond that turns into a question mark, including 
Is the truck, while it's rolling, does that make it a, a transportation vehicle? When it's stopped, does that make it a, a dwelling? I can tell you that when you start looking at campers and RVs and mobile homes and things like that, that the general premise of the law, again, your local listings may vary in your jurisdiction, is that, look, if it's parked, if it's not hooked up to a tow hook to a hitch in order to be moving anywhere, if it's parked, if it's hooked up to utilities, now it's definitely a home. If it's hitched up, ready to go someplace, or uh, even if it's not hitched up and maybe it's not hooked up to permanent utilities, then maybe it's not considered a dwelling. So there's a lot of, it, that particular question is a fantastic question. Um, unfortunately, there's such a confluence of state, local, and federal laws that come together, as well as situational of, well, are we parked? Is it up on blocks? Is it not up on blocks? The safest thing I can tell you is use the transportation laws, make sure that it's lawful where you're coming from, where you're going to, and don't dwell. That's also a very unsatisfying answer. I appreciate that fact. But honestly, it's just the best answer I can give. Otherwise, keep in mind you are carrying and possessing. So you may not be able, in fact, you probably won't be able to take advantage of those transport laws. You'll be stuck with whatever the local laws in that particular city, town, village, county, or state are, which may not be too favorable. Yeah, there's really no bright line answer for this. And that's why if you have the opportunity, take the time to write to your legislator and tell them that we want national reciprocity. We would love to have a national reciprocity law so that you're not becoming a criminal just by crossing state lines. And keep in mind as well that what we're talking about is we're talking about the firearms. We haven't even mentioned magazine capacity restrictions, maybe ammunition bans. There's all sorts of different other facets that this goes into as well um, that we didn't even mention as part of that question. It's a very, it's an excellent question. Unfortunately, it's an entirely complex question. It's gonna be specific on very detailed factors. And that leads us right into Joseph's next question. Can, uh, he's living in California. Sorry, Joseph, um, you could move, but um, wants to know, uh, there he has a 10-round magazine ban. Can he carry his regular magazines when he goes over to Utah? Well, first question is, Joseph, are you legal to carry in Utah? If you are, then, yep, you can carry your 12-round, 15-round, 17-round magazines in your firearm in Utah, but make sure that you are legal to carry where you're going and then that state law applies to where you are. The laws from California don't apply when you cross the border into Utah. So you have to have a Utah permit and follow the Utah laws. Anything else? No, you, you, you nailed it. Uh, it's, it's right. Yeah. Follow, follow the geography, the time and place. Keep in mind these things change. Well, good one. Now here, this one's just for you. How do bail bonds work? Got it. Bail bonds, um, excellent question. Actually, I don't think this is one we've gotten on one of these segments yeah. before. So. Um, bail bonds work a couple different ways, so let's kind of give you the crash course. Generally speaking, you can separate states into one or two different categories, states that have some sort of bail bondsman and states that don't. So we'll start with the states that don't because that's kind of the easier way of describing this, then we'll add the complication. So here in Wisconsin, we are a state that at present has no bail bondsman. What does that mean? It means that if the judge says that I'm giving you a $10,000 cash bail, You've got to post every single penny of that before you are going to be allowed to leave the jail, the courthouse, wherever it is that you are, all right? If you do not post that, guess what? You're getting three hots and a cot courtesy of the county jail, all right? Um, there's various rules on, on bond as to how it's posted and all this other kind of stuff. We'll leave that up to the local listings, but just understand that's how cash bail works. Separate from cash bail, something called a signature bond or personal recognizance bond. Maybe call it something a little bit different in your state, but it's all going to stand for the approximately the same premise, which is maybe you're not posting any kind of actual cash bail. So maybe the judge at the initial appearance would say, uh, Mr. Michalowski, I'm going to be setting you on a $10,000 signature bond. 
you actually don't post a penny of that. What that means is that you are effectively entering into a contract with that particular county or whatever jurisdiction or municipality is that is where the court you are at that's imposing that, and probably that state as well, whereby you are agreeing to follow the terms and conditions on that contract. If you violate the contract in any way, say for as an example, you fail to make a future court appearance, or maybe you commit a new law violation, then among, I'm sure, other penalties that you'll be facing, including maybe a warrant for your arrest, a separate crime for bail jumping, but also you may have just incurred a liability that that particular state, jurisdiction, whatever it is, can now sue you for the amount. So if Kevin failed to show up for court, then maybe they can go ahead and sue him for that $10,000 on this signature bond and garnish it from his wages, do a tax intercept, whatever it is that that might be. So those are kind of the two ways that bail kind of works. Keep in mind that this could be hybrid. So judges, if they want, may also impose a combination of $1,000 cash bail with a $10,000 signature bond. It's very uncommon for around here in Wisconsin, but you do see it. A bail bondsman states, which many states are, basically allows you to hire a private business entity to post money on your behalf. So maybe you just post a percentage of the overall cash bail with the private business. Perhaps they take care of the rest of it, and it's entirely possible that the total amount of cash bail need not be posted. So maybe a million dollars cash bail, maybe somebody just under the laws in that particular jurisdiction only has to post 10000 as opposed to here in Wisconsin, where if the judge says a million, that means a million. By the way, I'm unfamiliar with any jurisdiction that will ever accept a check. So don't expect to have that burner fake check, uh, you know, checking account with the zero dollar balance in it. It's cash, it's credit, or it's your toothbrush. That's basically what it is, all right? And keep in mind that not every county even accepts credit. That, that really didn't even start happening around here, in my experience, until maybe close to about 10 or so years ago. So, um, and there's often very restrictions that they'll only take it up to a certain time. Um, so bail bondsman, you're paying a percentage, you're hiring someone else to do it for you. If you jump bail, uh, that's where we get bounty hunters coming after you and uh, thing, life gets a little more interesting. Let's put it that way. Interesting, so, that's a yeah, nice, way, yeah. nice way to call that one. Yep. Um, starting to see a couple more of these questions come in. Um, when traveling through a state that doesn't recognize your concealed carry permit, what's the best way to transport your gun. Um, as these pop up, like you said, you know, locked up in your trunk, um, out of reach, unloaded, um, you know, that's that's probably gonna be the best way to yeah. transport, not carry. You've, you've got so. to make sure that you're transporting and not carrying, which generally means you cannot be possessing it. Now keep in mind, possession, the possession laws in the United States are basically created <laughs> to go after drug dealers. Um, speaking as a former state prosecutor and also having a sheriff's deputy sitting next to me, I'm sure Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, but my experience, uh, every single time there's drugs involved or rarely when there's drugs involved, does somebody say, oh, yep, that cocaine, that was mine. Uh, it's always yeah, a no, cousin's or I a friend's or, got there. I don't yeah. know how that got in my sock. Yeah, like yeah. I borrowed these socks, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, it's something that's, like that. So it's not mine. That's not <laughs> mine. It's never theirs. So. A lot of the laws are triggered around possession rather than ownership. Very few laws are actually based around ownership, and instead they're based around possession. And because people rarely want to own up to things like cocaine, uh, possession laws tend to be rather expansive as far as what do they consider possession. If I'm obviously holding something in my hands, that's actual possession. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind that there's something called constructive possession as well. So maybe if you have that firearm in your center console in your glove compartment, unless that center console or glove compartment is locked and you do not have immediate access to it, in other words, the key is in your luggage, which you'd have to stop and unpack things for five, 10 minutes before you got to it. If you've got immediate access to that glove box and you're driving the car, 
you are almost certainly going to be considered to be in what we call constructive possession. In other words, as far as the law is concerned, it's going to be almost as good as though as it's sitting in your lap. So putting, this, putting your firearm underneath your seat, in the center console, in the glove box, almost certainly is not going to cut it in order for the transportation laws. Again, certain exceptions for locked and not having immediate access and so forth. But folks, the easiest solution here is don't tempt fate. Unloaded, in case, locked, in the trunk. If it's not in the trunk, if you don't have a trunk, then make sure it's buried at the bottom of a pile. Yeah, uh, very, very as inaccessible. As far away from you as possible, yep, right. Make sure it's very inaccessible, yep. that, that a police officer couldn't say it was within your lunge area that you can't grab for it or something yep. like that. So, um, when driving from state to state, what is the best way to determine rules on where I can and can't carry? Well, we said it right at the beginning. USCCA.com slash laws, laws with an S, uscca.com slash laws. And what you can do is type that into the browser of your computer, then copy that, paste it onto your Facebook status, and let everybody you know know that that is the best place to find the laws, both a reciprocity map and an overview of the state laws for all 50 states. So uscca.com slash laws, that's a great place to start. Fantastic place to start. Ultimately, keep in mind that the best resource is actually contacting the Department of Justice for each individual state. Keep in mind that sometimes state laws get updated overnight. Something goes into effect on January 1st or January 10th or whatever it might be. Um, USCCA.com slash laws, amazing, amazing resource. I refer people to it all the time, but ultimately we're all responsible to make sure that things are valid in your own local listings. Alrighty. Steven wants to know, when traveling with a handgun through airport security, can a magazine that is detached from the handgun contain ammo or must it be empty? I have my own problems with airlines throughout the country. Um, I travel quite uh, regularly and um, in every single traveling incident, I have never had one airline treat me exactly the same as another airline. Um, I, I couldn't give you a great answer to this question. I could tell you to go onto the TSA website and do exactly what they say. And I've done that and then been told that my ammo needed to be in its original container. Um, okay, so now I always carry my ammo in the original container. I have had loaded magazines sitting right next to the gun, locked in the case when I was asked to display them at the counter. And yep, show the gun is unloaded and fine, then they let me get on the airplane. I've been taken into back rooms and displayed the gun there. I've been told not to show anyone the gun, just sign the card and shove it inside. I don't know what the airlines do and they don't know what they're supposed to do. So um, TSA.gov is a good place to start, but. Yeah, um, welcome to my day job. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's just what it is. Like what everything Kevin said, you can basically transpose across not only every state, every county, but keep in mind, you know, Kevin started to say something a little earlier that I'm just going to pick up again right here, which is the fact that even within a particular state, one cop may give you kind of a little bit of a wink and a shove and say, look, get out of here, I don't care, or hey, way to go, that's what we want to see. And the next person may be hyper-political and trying to seek some sort of promotion and is looking to, to go after someone. You just really never know who you're dealing with. And the same thing applies to airlines here. Um, generally speaking, uh, for, well, let's, let's start with the question. I would not be traveling with any kind of magazine or anything on me that's a clearly identifiable firearm part with me going through TSA. I mean, that's, right. that's a fantastic way to miss your flight, quite frankly. Um, under, there's sometimes exceptions. Maybe if you have a particularly expensive scope or something like that that you want to carry in a case, you don't want to watch it get chucked around. I get it. But uh, absent something like that, I would not be carrying magazines around. But yeah, otherwise everything that Kevin said 
your firearm needs to be locked, hard-sided case, declared at unloaded, declared at, at check-in, talk to the airlines. Keep in mind that whatever they tell you over the phone or on their website may not be how they, they run it in practice, either at where you are departing from or where you will be returning from either. So just keep in mind these are all different. My experience on it is that uh, if you keep the, the ammunition in the original um, ammo box, the manufacturer's yeah. box, that's about the most restrictive, lowest common denominator you can get to. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be a fair one to kind of plan for. Yeah, and, and remember too, when you're traveling, if you're, you're making a connection through New York, if you're going to LaGuardia or JFK, and you miss your flight or your flight gets canceled, you can run into trouble there because now you're possessing a firearm in New York and uh, do you have to take your luggage back from the, the airlines and now you've got that in your hand? Um, all sorts of things to think about before you get on the airplane and start traveling with your firearm. And God forbid if that happens to you, don't, I honestly don't take possession of, yeah. make them keep it. Yeah. Uh, because the second you, you, you intentionally take possession of it, good luck, you're arguably committing whatever misdemeanor or felony it is that it might be in that mm -hmm. state, which is a great argument to make sure you're connecting through gun-friendly states albeit weather, weird things happen and you get forced down in an area where maybe you didn't plan on it. Um, folks, unfortunately, the best advice I can give you, the safest advice I can give you is don't take possession of your luggage. I'm sorry, go out, buy that t-shirt in whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're staying to get that change of clothes. But just understand if you're taking possession of it, uh, you're committing a crime and you're gonna have to be, when you go back and check it back in the next morning or whenever your next flight is, you are announcing to the world that you just committed a crime. So this isn't even like a, well, I'm off the grid. It's, no, you, you affirmatively have to declare that you've committed that felony. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a foolish risk in my mind. Yeah, and another pro tip when you're traveling on an airline, um, make sure you write down or save it on your phone the make, model, and serial number of the firearm you're traveling with, and maybe take a picture of that, both the gun and the case that it's with, to make sure that you know what you're looking for if that thing gets misplaced, or if you're going to make the airline keep it while you're staying there overnight where you don't want to stay, that you get that gun back, then make sure that you can get a receipt for that. And I'll, I'll kick in one other thing as well, which is that keep in mind that theoretically, um, if... Even, okay, you've checked it in, you've gone through TSA, you've got your coffee, whatever it is, you're, you're now at the gate waiting. Pay attention to those overhead pages because if there's an overhead page for your name because for whatever reason they want to go through the luggage and you, they need you to use your key to open it up, if you don't catch that, if you don't make yourself available, it could be that your luggage won't be going with and it could be as a result you won't be going with that plane either. So um, you got to be a little bit more vigilant, take the headphones off, pay attention, uh, to what's what's going on out there. Alrighty. Uh, Gary wants to know if my gun remains in my vehicle, is it legal to have with me in all 50 states? Um, you heard us before, unless Gary, you just, you just tuned in now, um, make sure you follow the transport laws that, that Tom has talked about extensively. Um, you know, out of your access, locked up, unloaded, in a case, put it away from you, and still then you might run into some problems. You can, and keep in mind as well that certain states, if you do get pulled over for speeding or something like that, you may have, it may be a crime if you fail to declare that you do have a firearm in the car. So to also keep those sorts of issues in mind. Again, I know another complication to think about, but just keep in mind that there are certain states where that's an extra issue. So you could be doing everything right. You may not know that, oh, in this particular state that I have an affirmative duty to warn law enforcement. So. Unfortunately, it's just an extra wrinkle to, to keep in the back of your mind.
Yeah, and maybe that's something we should uh, put right on the top of our uh, USCCA pages there about state laws. Does this state require an affirmative right. duty? Right, a map to of the map yeah. of the affirmative duty yeah. states. Yeah. Because we have we have open carry and, and concealed carry states and stuff like that. But it's another good thing mm. to talk about. You so, heard it here first, folks. That's right. You know, we're we're doing business planning while we're doing the <laughs> webinar right now. So I hope Bonnie's watching. She's got more work to do now. <laughs> so in the event that someone had to use deadly force. Couldn't having a USCCA membership be viewed negatively by the courts? We hear this a lot. I want you to talk about it because you have the best answer. Okay. <laughs> so if the prosecutor, and I'm going to say it this way, the prosecutor is going to be silly enough or stupid enough to bring in your USCCA membership, your defense attorney will have basically in a barn door to drive through, hopefully, all of the training that you've received about avoiding conflict, de-escalating, walking away, not getting involved in something, no one here is advocating vigilante justice, just the opposite. We're advocating that you do everything possible to not have to pull the trigger, which if you do, you're doing it as a last resort and only to stop the threat to save your life or the life of a loved one or something like that, right? Um, if the prosecutor wants to bring up your USCCA membership, the jury's gonna be able to hear about what that membership means what kind of organization it is that you've volunteered to uh, associate with. And I think that that's something that's going to be coming in quite powerfully on your side. And I think that if the prosecutors are intelligent enough to recognize that, that they'll probably be doing just the opposite. They might be seeking to actually try to keep your USCCA membership out of court and, all, and to keep all the USCCA training out of court. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, you know, people who are worried that a USCCA card in your pocket might make a prosecutor think that you joined the USCCA so you could go hunt bad guys, that's not what we teach people to do. That, that what we teach people to do is avoid conflict and use violence only as a last resort. So I can't see that the USCCA membership can be used negatively in, in any way based on, on what we do. And so. keep in mind that, that your activities are going to stand on their own at the end of the day, right? Um, we can talk about all the different positive things that the USCCA teaches and promotes to avoid violence, de-escalate confrontations, and leave a bad scene. At the end of the day, unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, if you make a seriously wrong call about something, um, if you are that vigilante, then, I mean, justice is coming at the end of the day. And uh, the, the state laws are going to be applied. But that's why you're here, is because you want to learn the right way of doing things to protect not only yourself, but your loved ones as well. Thanks, Tom. Um, Next one, here's a good one for you. If you're discovered carrying a firearm in a business that's posted, can you be arrested or will they just ask you to leave? What should you do? Um. Various, I mean, <laughs> check your local listings, as Kevin would say, yeah. right? Um, in certain states, they may have to actually just ask you to leave. In other words, there's no arrest or anything like that. Um, you may just, you, they have to ask you to leave. If you comply, then they can't do anything. Other states, yeah, it can be major penalties, including possible jail or prison time right off the bat mm -hmm. if they just catch you. Also keep in mind that even within a state like the first group I listed, like here in Wisconsin, where if, they, where if, they, if you missed it or come in uh, to, the, to the front door that it was a posted property or business, um, that you cannot be auto-arrested. Keep in mind that there's almost always scenarios where the answer is yes. There's always exceptions. As an example, we talked about the post office before. Post office in Wisconsin, post office in Wisconsin is still a big problem. So keep in mind that there's always examples crossing every which way. Um, but, uh, but generally speaking, check your local listings. Odds are you're, that your state will fall into what we have here in Wisconsin, which is 
basically you get a little bit of a mulligan, um, and if you uh, leave peacefully, there's no issue. Uh, and then there's states at the other end of the spectrum where they can arrest you and throw you in jail and, and bad things happen. Yeah, so know where you are and what the laws are at all times. Um, John would like us to touch a little bit on red flag laws. So um, gotcha. we heard this last month as well. Um, these are starting to come up more and more now. A right. lot of discussion on this. So for those of you who don't know, a red flag law is kind of the, the old expression of see something, say something, put on steroids. Um, what this is is... It's a process whereby if somebody sees a neighbor, someone that they know, or maybe only peripherally know, um, that they think, you know, something seems off, something seems whatever, um, I'm going to notify law enforcement or the authorities that maybe something is bad here. Um, well, they may be able to, they being the government, may be able to conduct a unilateral investigation without you ever even knowing about it, without you ever being able to have a counsel or an attorney present. And they can basically decide, you know what, we're going to red flag or red list this person as saying this person is not able to possess firearms for whatever the period of time may be. Six months, a year, who knows? It's a process that um, has a lot of uh, very serious and, and frankly scary um, scary avenues looking at it from the Constitution side of the fact that the government can decide when your rights apply in essence. Um, I think we all understand why those laws are there or why some states are trying to push for them um, and what some of the motives may or may not be behind them but I think we can also I think everybody can agree you know what if they did this to free speech what if they yeah. did this to Fourth Amendment what if they did this to whatever insert right here right mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, there's, there's some very scary things that could be coming out of this. Yeah, and it's something we need to watch very closely as gun owners um, to pay attention to what people are asking for and, and maybe, like Tom said, why they're asking. Why do they want this law to put in place? And if you're in an anti-gun state with a red flag law, you could end up being at the mercy of you know, a, a law enforcement agency who says, you know what, we don't like the way this person is posting on Facebook we're going to go take his guns. Absolutely. I mean, if you've heard about the phenomenon, which was started, I don't know, maybe about 10 or so years ago, called swatting. Yeah. Swatting, swatting, like SWAT team, but swatting to make it a verb. Uh, this is where it used to be just youths. Now I think it's kind of expanded beyond, mm -hmm. that, beyond that demographic. But that's where people, as a prank, if you can believe this, um, call in that there's an active shooter at such and such a house or a location, mm -hmm. knowing that a police SWAT team armed to the teeth are going to be making a dynamic entry and someone might die out of that. And that prank is called swatting. Um, similar to this, it's a unilateral, somebody from outside is just coming in and doing something and it's going to be using the force of government against you without your knowledge that it's coming and with you having possibly done nothing to provoke it. Um, anybody who thinks that there's going to be zero issues or problems or concerns with red flag laws, uh, obviously has never heard of or bothered to take seriously the phenomenon known as swatting. And that's just one of many examples of potential issues out there that I think are pretty analogous as seeing where this could go wrong and where similar logic and laws have gone wrong elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be something to watch and take care of. So yeah. now let's talk about the uh, legal implications of having a modified firearm. If you're involved in a legal shooting sure. and you've modified your firearm in some way, shape, or form, um, particularly a lighter trigger or something like that, sure. what might the legal implications be? I'm going to start off by saying if you have disabled any of the safety functions on yeah. your firearm, put those back. The safety should all be in there. But uh, to a larger extent, I carry a modified, a semi-custom gun. Um, 
I don't think there's too many problems with that. You know, my argument would be my gun is now more accurate and more reliable. So, right. So, most in my experience, both as a former state prosecutor and as a defense attorney, and, and Kevin, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Um, my experience with most law enforcement officers is that they're the, the majority of them are not gun people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you see somebody with like a SWAT rocker or tab, that probably means they're a gun person. I think that pretty much most SWAT officers join SWAT for the free ammo. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, yeah, okay, all right. Well, going down the right path here then. So with that in mind, keep in mind that you may be very conversant on what it means to install a particular type of light or a particular trigger or a particular grip modification. That might look scary to somebody who doesn't know what's going on. Uh, and again, that's not fair, and it doesn't mean that it cannot be overcome with some explanation, with uh, possibly an expert witness testifying on your behalf to explain that, no, this actually makes the gun more safe. Why? Because it means I can control it better. It means I can aim it better. Um, and ultimately, that's going to potentially save lives and make me more accurate. That's fine. Um, I think that, you know, and, and what I have rolling through the, the inside of my eyeballs right now is... Uh, so many times where I've been sitting in court where I've just watched prosecutors and judges and defense attorneys too, who really don't know anything about guns, sure act like they do uh, as far as what does this mean, what does that mean. Um, at the end of the day, to me, the single biggest thing is two things. Number one, what are the facts of your case? I don't care what you did to your firearm. If you negligently discharged it and killed someone, you having a light on it or not on it really isn't going to change that much, okay? Um, arguably, you could say if it's nighttime that you had better view to know what you were shooting at if you, you had a light on it. Uh, I would say that, the so number one, what's the facts of the case? That's going to be probably the single biggest factor. The second biggest factor is who's your defense attorney? Do you have a defense attorney who understands firearms, who gets what's going on, who's going to be able to look at the list of modifications and should know or ideally would know a handful of them at least, or is going to be open to learning about it? Or do you have somebody who doesn't really know what they're talking about and um, you, know, you don't even know why you have them or something like that? And that's one of the great things, of course, about the USCCA is with legal protection, is that you get to shop around and pick who you have. And that's probably going to be the second, some would even argue the first most important thing about your case. I'd probably say the second most important thing beyond the facts, because the great facts are going to speak for themselves and a great defense attorney is going to be able to influence those facts and stack the deck, but they can't fundamentally change the cards in the deck. They cannot fundamentally do any of that. They can spot things other attorneys may miss to highlight certain cards and pull them out into play and know how to play them better. Um, but I am not anti-modifications, um, I guess with one major exception, which is anything that would make you look like you're some sort of vigilante, bloodthirsty, mm-hmm. seeking goon, right? Yeah. So uh, gentlemen, probably take off the, the any kind of punisher grips or decals. Um, anything that your girlfriend might roll her eyes over or your spouse may roll your eyes over, I understand that probably just, we all have different levels of where that might yeah. be. Love you, sweetie, all right? <laughs> but um, you know, just keep in mind that uh, things with cartoons, things with this, things with that, as your defense attorney, I would want to be able to present a client who takes their, their training seriously, who takes their commitment to following the law seriously, that takes their commitment to ethics seriously, and somebody who has their firearm adorned with cartoons or vigilante justice, 
you're creating problems. And again, I'm not saying that's fair, I'm saying that's life. And I'm sorry if you don't like it, but that's what it is. So I would want to see something certainly a little bit more vanilla, for lack of a way of putting it, when it comes to those kind of extra, extra uh, decorations. You know, leave, save that for something else, um, not your concealed carry weapon. Thanks. Very well put. Um, all right, here's another one from Jim. We've spent thousands of dollars on some excellent training run by a former law enforcement officer. How important is that to make sure we log that accredited training? Um, I'm going to say very important. If, if you're getting lots of great training, write all that stuff down because, you know, if, if you have an eight-hour firearms class and you're involved in a shooting, that investigation is going to last more than eight hours. That's, <laughs> right. You know. Right. And, you know, just like what we touched on before, for any folks who may have tuned in since we talked about it, is one of the great things about the USCCA, one of the great things about getting fantastic firearm training is that if, God forbid, you're ever involved in some kind of self-defense scenario and you're in court, your defense team may be able to, and should be able to, hopefully, be able to get a lot of that evidence in, talking about your training to de-escalate, avoid conflict, walk away, and only use your firearm as a last resort. And then, and only then, to stop a threat from possibly doing great bodily harm or killing you. Um, that's, that's basically kind of the sequence of events. And uh, if you're able to introduce all that training to show how you were trained and show that no, because keep in mind, that jury you're going to have a lot of people in that jury that are not gun people. In fact, probably the prosecutor's going to be trying to throw off. I can tell you, as a trial attorney, one of the first questions a prosecutor asks a possible jury in any case is, who's here is an NRA member? Or who here is, is whatever particular member it is? They may be trying to throw off all sorts of people from the jury um, who they're going to perceive as anybody who's remotely pro-Second Amendment. Who here is pro-Second Amendment? Who here owns guns? Whatever it is that it might be, and the prosecutor will go through a whole list of them. There's no one factor. There's a whole list. Uh, and they are going to try to be throwing people off the jury who know something about guns, let alone maybe they think, to their mind, pro-Second Amendment, which means that you're probably going to lose a lot of those diehard pro-Second Amendment folks. You're going to probably have a lot of people who, you know, they, they, their uncle's got a firearm, mm -hmm. something like that. You know, they, yeah, they went... They went turkey hunting or deer hunting once 15, 20 years ago, and that may be it. That, that oftentimes is the jury pool that you're going to have. So being able to articulate that, no, you want to know I have a concealed carry license? If that question comes up, let me show you the training and the lifestyle that I'm leading, my family's leading. Um, and it, it, can be, it, it can be a very powerful tool. Thanks very much. I see that uh, Max is writing us a note right now that, uh, hey, he just got an email notification that uh, the note went out that we were going live just a little bit late. So if you're here now and you've missed anything, don't worry. As soon as we're done, the replay will be up on your dashboard. You'll be able to watch this as, as a part of your USCCA membership. So um, thank you very much for watching. And if you missed anything, you can always go back and look it over on your dashboard. So um, let's get right into some more questions. Um, would a firearms instructor or an amateur or professional firearms competitor be held to a higher standard? Uh, if you shoot IDPA or something like that, would be held to a different standard if you're involved in deadly force? I'm, I'm going to start out by saying, you know what? The rules for deadly force are pretty much cut and dried. Um, the fact that you're a good shot or that you compete doesn't change the impact of what's happening to you and how you're responding to it. So how do, how do we go from there? Are you going to be looked at differently? 
I, I could imagine that a jury pool may perceive you differently depending upon the evidence that they're going to hear. But at the end of the day, what where you started is where I'll end it, which is the fact that, look, the laws are the laws are the laws. doesn't matter if you picked up your firearm once and shot it once 10 years ago or if you're somebody who practices on a monthly or weekly basis or something like that. Um, you simply at the end of the day with more training and more practice probably have a better odds of hitting your target, stopping the threat, and thereby saving your life or the life of somebody around you. Um, that's just the way I look at it. But it's the same laws, folks, whether you shoot once or whether or not you shoot and, and train regularly. Yeah, and I think uh, you've mentioned this before with other questions. If you have a good defense attorney, that defense attorney is going to be able to say that, yes, my client trains a lot so he can be safer. We're not becoming more deadly. We're becoming safer. That's, right. what, that's why we're doing this sort of stuff. Right. So um, next question up, when is it acceptable to use deadly force in protection of property? I have a friend who drives an armored car and he told me that if someone grabs a bag of cash and runs away, he is authorized to shoot. I don't know where this guy's living, but uh, <laughs> um, okay. Um, I was under the impression that deadly force is always unlawful in defense of property, except in Texas. Um, I, I know that that's, that's uh, one of the caveats is that hmm. you can use deadly force in Texas to protect property. Um, I also know a person who was uh, working on an armored car and uh, the deal was there, if something happened, the driver was to just drive away. And if the, uh, the other guards were outside, too bad they get left at the Chances. scene. Yeah, he's driving, he's driving <laughs> away. So I am gonna say this again, it is self-defense, it is not stuff defense. Tom is going to talk about check your local listings and know where you are. Um, if, if somebody is stealing something from you and running away, they are not posing an imminent deadly threat. Don't use deadly force. It, even if it's legal and you may be able to justify it, you still have to justify it. It's going to be a long, drawn-out explanation of why you shot this person when they were not an imminent deadly threat. So uh, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, I mean, um, look, if, if somebody is such a lowlife that they're going to steal your wallet, your wife's purse, whatever it might be, and try to run away, you are not winning by shooting them as they're running away, all right? You are ruining your life and your wife's life by shooting them as they're running away. That's what you're doing. Is that worth it? Is that an equal trade to stop that, to get your wife's purse back, but you spend the rest of your life in prison? I would say no. Uh, now what Kevin said, and I guess I'll just repeat that now because I feel like I, I have to. I mean, I've been set up to say it. <laughs> So check your local listings about what your laws may be as far as the uh, protection of property. Generally speaking, many states do authorize a use of non-deadly force, non-lethal force to stop the interference with your, with your property. Um, but that's a very nebulous standard. And keep in mind that while one state may say that, well, you can shove somebody who is trying to break into your car, the next state may say that shove is a battery. I mean, you, you, yeah. you, you just don't know. So um, at the end of the day, your stuff is not you, and your stuff's not worth going to prison for. And uh, if you think that it does, I guess I'd encourage you to look around you, take stock of what your value in life, and uh, it, it's, uh, I'm not saying that your stuff isn't important, your car isn't important, your wallet isn't important, but it shouldn't be as important as your children, your future children, your current children, um, your friends, your family, your loved ones. And uh, that's what you're gonna be losing to momentarily take back your wallet before the police confiscated his evidence and you never see it again because you're in prison, so. Yeah. <laughs> Very well put, so. Um, George wants to know if he can use his hand-loaded ammunition for self-defense and is that going to cause him a problem? Um, I have some thoughts on this. Sure. I'll let you go first this time. Sure, so I used to reload my own ammo, so I, I get it. Um, 
that uh, you can, if you're really good at it, you can make some really good ammo, you can custom tailor it, you can do all this and that. Uh, I would say two things. Number one is that yeah, factory ammo these days is pretty good. It's really good, actually. It's super, super, super good. Um, you know that you're going to be getting the waterproof seals, which is always a bit of a question on, on if you've reloaded ammo. Is it going to be waterproof? Is the primer seated in there properly? All this other kind of stuff. So uh, I would say that self-defense ammo, um, a lot of the arguments to reload your self-defense ammo, I think have fallen by the wayside over the years with uh, the ever-increasing standards in a good way of the manufacturers that are out there as they compete with one another. Um, second thing is keep in mind what the prosecutor's gonna be trying to do. And we're assuming, by the way, that you are really good at reloading your own ammo, your buddy is, and there's no misfires, there's no, we're, we're assuming there's no problems. Because obviously, yeah. if anything like that happens, then yeah, use the factory stuff, right? Um, so we're assuming that everything comes off without a hitch. Um, but the second thing is this, which is the fact that remember how probably the prosecutor is going to inevitably try to portray you as some sort of uh, gun-hungry, tackleberry, vigilante type, for those of you Police Academy fans. It's going um, way back. Tom. Going way, way back. back. It's a deep cut, but <laughs> I think some of you got there. So um, hopefully you appreciated the ride. So um, you're, you are going to be feeding that, that, that image that the prosecutor will invariably be trying to show. Again, no one here is saying that that's fair to you. No one is saying it's just. No one is saying anything about that. Um, but that's a very common attack angle that prosecutors and the government takes. And you will be feeding that by leaving that open and out there. And even if you, you're like, well, yeah, I can overcome that and address that, keep in mind that you know the old expression in politics is that if you're explaining, you're losing, right? Um, I would rather, as a defense attorney, be attacking the prosecution's straw man argument that my client is some sort of vigilante by talking about your training and going through all this other thing showing it's not the case. Not explaining that the guy who makes his own ammo is not the same person who has human lampshades or something like that, right? I mean, I'm being facetious, but hopefully you get my point that I think it's a little bit more difficult to try to squeeze lemonade out of that lemon. Not that reloading is a lemon, but of trying to turn that around into a positive. I feel like that's something that you're kind of just left defending on, if yeah, that makes sense. And, and that's exactly where I was going with this, is if, if the prosecutor gets to the point now that he's talking about your ammo, and, and they're bringing that up and presenting that to the, the jury, that's just time where we're not talking about the actual incident. And the actual incident, you probably did the right thing. You probably saved your life and you acted appropriately, but now they have something else they can talk about. And boy, you can go down a really deep rabbit hole when you're talking about SAMI standards and, and pressures and, and how did you make sure it was, you know, was, your, uh, was the weights and measures calibrated properly for the load that you put in and, and all of those sorts of things just gives prosecutors and other people more time to talk about things that are not you defending yourself. So I would say use you know, standard, top quality, manufactured ammo and and if you want to reload do that for training and keep in mind another thing as well which is you know something we did not just touch on in our hypothetical is let's say that you get a pass-through shot or let's say you just miss your target hey it happens particularly of course when we're talking about you defending your life in a very stressful event and your bullet uh, either passes through the guy you know it's flesh wounds and goes out and hits someone else or maybe it goes through a couple uh, layers of sheetrock or drywall and then hits someone else the prosecutor might be saying, maybe you're charged not for shooting the bad guy, but for having that reloaded bullet, which never in a million years would have actually gone through 
you know, three layers of drywall or something like yeah. that. And Kevin's got a series of fantastic uh, videos out there where he tests exactly what ammunition can get through and what it cannot get through. But point being is that, look, we're, we're thinking inside a box of you shoot the bad guy, you're on trial for shooting the bad guy. And I'm saying there's another box outside of that box and about 10 more boxes beyond that where, okay, we are really introducing variables and opportunities for the prosecutor to go after us. And again, to my way of thinking, it's not worth it given the quality ammunition that's out there. Thanks very much. Hey, uh, Stan wants to know, uh, what is constitutional carry? He sees it on a reciprocity map that some states are constitutional carry states, and he wants to know what that means. Sure. A constitutional carry state, very simply, is a state that you do not need to have a permit in order to carry in. Now, keep in mind that maybe the constitutional carry, so you gotta, you got to check uh, that, again, you're not a prohibited possessor. There's a lot of caveats that go into this. Maybe you've got to be a resident of that state. Maybe to be a, a, somebody vacationing there, you actually do have to have a permit. So you do need to, to qualify this somewhat. But generally speaking, in order to carry in a state, you either need to have a license, and that license will either be may issue or shall issue, or it's a constitutional carry state. In other words, as long as you're not a prohibited possessor, meet the age criteria and so forth, then you should be good to go. But again, check your local listings. There's always an asterisk next to, well, everything at least I say. Yeah, and, <laughs> and uh, that, that's why we have attorneys, because uh, the laws are written to be vague, so attorneys can <laughs> interpret them and present Sorry. that to judges, and judges <laughs> can in interpret the attorney's arguments. So um, it's kind of circular, but that's the way it is. Yeah. So. Um, let's see, after deploying non-lethal means that don't work, what are the ramifications if now you have to escalate from non-lethal, pepper spray, you know, something else, and you have to pull your gun and shoot the person? Okay. I'm thinking, good job, you know, you've tried everything. You've That's tried. Just, yeah. Right, you've created <laughs> so. a track record showing that you tried, right? Mm -hmm. um, so at least there's that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I mean, otherwise, look, you want to use, generally speaking, as a defense attorney, I would say, use the, the minimum force necessary to save your life. Yeah, that's what it is. Yep, and and uh, the the force that we're told to use as police officers has to be objectively reasonable. So, yep, we tried to subdue him with pepper spray and it didn't work, and we ended up escalating to deadly force. So, um, at that point, good for you. You're right. It it shows a clear trail that I didn't want to shoot this guy. Right. I was doing everything else to avoid it. So, um, I've heard that a handicapped person is less of a danger or culpable state to provide use of deadly force as this. So. Ed, your, your question was clunky, and I'm a grammar nerd, so I'm going to pick on you a little bit about <laughs> that. Um, what we have are victim-subject factors, okay? If the attacker is known to have committed violence, is known to have uh, MMA training uh, for any reason, or if you, as the subject of this attack, the victim of this attack, can't defend yourself as well as a fit, young, agile person, you may use more force faster. Okay, it is not a blank check, but you may use more force fast because you have less of an opportunity to get out of the way. Right. Effective? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're <laughs> exactly what Kevin just said is same thing if you have, um, maybe if you're older, if you're 90 years old, it's going to be a different, it's going to be a different set of self-defense criteria that people are just going to be subjectively viewing you towards. Now, keep in mind, the laws may not change. They actually might if you have a disability. Again, check your local listings. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, if, if uh, you know, somebody attacking you um, with maybe their bare hands could constitute a very lethal uh, threat, depending upon what they've said, what they're specifically doing, and so on. 
if you are wheelchair bound and uh, are incapable of getting away, if you're incapable of doing anything other than reaching for the one handgun that's with you, again, everything is going to vary and depend on the minutia, which we obviously don't have as part of this question. But the laws, generally speaking, don't change unless there's carve outs for things along the lines of kind of what we're talking about. Um, but uh, the disparity of force is absolutely something that your defense attorney, the prosecutor, uh, and the judge and jury are going to be looking at. It's part of every case. Yeah, it, it, like you said, the laws don't change um, the interpretations of at what point is this an imminent threat right. of death or great bodily harm. Yeah. And, and the older and more infirm or, or in, unable to defend yourself you are, the more you are then allowed to use force sooner. Right. So, um, All right. Oh, another reminder. You will be able to see this replay after we finish up. It will be on your dashboard in its entirety, except for the parts that maybe we don't know. It'll be on there in its entirety. <laughs> so... Um, what happens when an armed intruder is shot in the back while turning away? Just as, uh, you know, am I liable for his injuries? Um, I've gone through the four science classes and, and I'm certified in the four science institute classes. And yes, there are times when somebody can get shot in the back. You are going to need an expert witness to explain why this works. That's why you're a USCCA member. We will get you a good attorney. That attorney will find you an expert witness and be able to explain exactly how this works. I'm not going to explain you know, the fact that your vision is the slowest sense that you can deal with or anything like that, but there's really good science out there about why sometimes people get shot in the back. Right. I mean, look, sometimes it happens, even if you're trying to do everything possible to do nothing more than stop the threat. Sometimes it happens. There was an, uh, a case out there where some guy broke into a home and advanced in the homeowners by running backwards, thinking, oh, I, I won't get shot in the back. I mean, these are, these are outliers. Um, as we would say, these are, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, you think horses, not zebras. These are definitely zebras. They're not something that you see every day. They are reasons why they are outliers. Uh, but things like this do happen, and everything Kevin said is absolutely correct. This is where the best defense attorneys are going to make the difference between you walking free uh, versus spending the rest of your life behind bars. And, and it's going to be a tough case, no matter what. When somebody gets shot in the back, it's a tough case. So make sure that you have good representation and, and go look for the best experts out there. And right. uh, those guys over at Force Science Institute have done a great job of putting this together very scientifically. So um, next question up, uh, we travel a lot in our motor home and we carry various rifles, shotguns, and handguns. Boy, I want to hang out with you folks. <laughs> um, we also have a stick house in, in Colorado. What rights do we have if someone enters our RV? And uh, um, we understand that it varies by state to state, but do you have a general opinion on when you can defend yourself? And, you know, somebody's coming into your RV. Some states call them a home. Some states don't. Um, it, again, is it an imminent deadly threat? That's, we'll revert to that one. Right. Yeah, that's, 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 the, that's the, the lowest common denominator. Is, is this an immediate threat? Is it an imminent deadly threat? Um, what are they saying? Is it a cop knocking on the door to make sure everyone's okay? Mm -hmm. Is it a forest ranger knocking on the door? Is this 10 guys wearing ski masks piling in while brandishing shotguns? I mean, obviously, look, I'm being facetious here by coming up with some very different situations. But in there lies the truth of, you know, somebody just walking into your RV may or may not be okay to, uh, to, to take deadly force to protect yourself. It's really going to depend upon the specifics. Um, and keep in mind those vary not only by the facts, but also by the laws as to where you are. So just be mindful of all those sorts of things. Yeah, and watch your uh, email inbox. All of the emails we send you are wonderful and important, so don't delete them. Watch carefully. 
Um, coming in March, we will have our next Proving Ground series. And it was done at an RV park. We took a camper out there and we attacked our poor innocent victims in the camper. Um, boy, they had a really bad time. They chose a bad campsite. Why does um, anybody <laughs> volunteer to be on these live training broadcasts anymore? It, Haven't it, they watched it, the other ones and they yeah, know it never goes uh, well? Yeah, don't travel with us or don't <laughs> yeah. hang out with us. You're going to get in a gunfight. Um, <laughs> but uh, the very next live training broadcast coming up in March, um, that deals with living in a motorhome and dealing with what happens in a motorhome if you're attacked. And I'll tell you what, we got some very interesting responses from our two trainees. Um, we allowed the uh, first scenario to go on for approximately 11 minutes um, oh. just to see what was happening. And uh, um, it's a lot of good talking points, but uh, we will be addressing mm -hmm. RV life uh, in March at our live training broadcast. So keep an eye out on your email inbox. We'll be sending you a note when that stuff starts up. So looks like, um, wait, we have the final question here. I live in an anti-gun state. My place of work has a policy in our handbook about no guns in the office or on the property. What are my options? Is this something that I take a risk and talk to HR about, therefore revealing that I carry? Holy cow. Um, <laughs> come work at the USCCA. We're hiring. Um, you don't have to worry about uh, carrying a gun here at the office. Um, this one, again, this goes all over the board. Um, right. I'm not going to tell anybody to violate company policy and get fired. I don't want them being mad at me about that. I'm not going to tell them to violate state law. Right. Um, you know, so what are this person's options? Oof. <laughs> You're done. I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what else you want. What, yeah. what, I mean, I don't know what else we can say without candidly breaking the law or telling you to break the law. Um, what are your options? I mean, Kevin just outlined it. If you're going to go to HR, you're effectively notifying them that you may be committing a crime, depending upon your local states. So you're broadcasting the world that you're committing a crime. I don't know what your relationship with that HR rep is, what the company is, or anything else. I'm presuming you're not super close with the ownership group. Otherwise, you wouldn't be asking this question about working through an HR uh, manager or representative. So I'm presuming that there's at least some distance between you and the decision makers. And for whatever reason, that company has decided that they want their, uh, their business to be a victim-friendly zone. Um, and uh, I would say that they're not valuing your life as an employee, nor the lives of their customers. And, uh, you know, coming to Wisconsin, we've got good, law, good, good gun laws here. Yeah, and uh, um, there's a, a reference that I use out there. It's, it's a book, and, and I'm, I'm not even going get, to uh, get any, any royalties from this or anything like that. Um, it's called Guns in the Workplace, and it's by a man named Chuck Klein. And I'll actually be giving a presentation on this at the SHOT Show at SHOT Show University later in January. And that book outlines how you can make the case for carrying guns in your workplace to your HR department. And if you don't want them to know where it came from, just slide it under the HR rep store. <laughs> and maybe they'll pick it up and read it, maybe they won't, or you're gonna have to go in there and pitch to this. But there are some resources out there, and that, that book, Guns in the Workplace, you can find it on Amazon.com. It's a great resource that, that gives you an outline um, that actually shows the business benefit of allowing people to carry guns in the workplace. So that might be a place to start, or like Tom said, move, get a new job. You know, the economy's good, unemployment's low, you can, you can get a job. Something to add as well is just check to see whether or not it's lawful for you to even be concealed carrying or possessing a firearm in your car on company property. Um, your state may go any number of different ways, and uh, I've unfortunately seen it here in Wisconsin where if you're at an anti-gun business where even just trying to broach the conversation that Kevin just brought up, where all of a sudden they're trying to search your car or something like that to see if you have firearms there. Um, so just keep in mind that 
I mean, look, it's uh, <laughs> the uh, the problems run deep sometimes, and sometimes not. Um, so just make sure that that you you cover all of your bases before you have that conversation. I'm not saying don't have the conversation. Educate yourself. Do exactly what Kevin just outlined. But you may want to consider also familiarizing yourself with what you can and cannot be doing. Great. Um, that should do it. And uh, I'm looking at the clock over here, and as as my therapist says, our time is up, Tom. <laughs> so. Uh, we're out of here, and uh, that was our final question, but I do want to let you know that if you have any other questions about gun laws, go to our website, uscca.com laws, and that's our reciprocity map and our overview of gun laws, and we're updating that on a continuous basis. We're making that better all the time. Um, it, it, it's very good right now, but you know we want to hear about it too, so if you have other questions about membership or comments about stuff like that, call our member services center, send them a chat, text, email. You can reach us in any number of ways. We have a, a great social care team that's working 24 hours a day. So please make sure that we, uh, um, we hear from you. We want to know what's going on. You've the, got the other yeah, follow-ups here? Well, yeah, one quick follow-up as well is obviously this is, this is a service that we're trying to add for free um, for existing members. A great way that you can actually keep it that way is do things that don't cost you anything and just take a moment of your time. So you should see a link, you should see a button that says, you know, leave me a review, leave Tom Grieve a review. Um, if you have already left us a review before, this is actually going to another one of our Google My Business locations. Uh, if you don't see that button, it's really easy. You just Google Grieve Law, G-R-I-E-V-E, -E, Grieve Law, and just find a location, give us that five-star review. It's the internet, four out of five stars is kind of a failing grade. So I'd ask that if you felt like you got anything out of this today and would like to see it again in the future, help to make that possible and leave us a quick review. Just takes a few moments of your time. It doesn't cost anything. We tremendously appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, and leave that Google review for uh, USCCA as well um, out there. It really does help us. And remember, you can watch this replay on your dashboard. Um, all of this great information is going to be out there for you to have. This is your member benefit, members only. The only people who get to watch this are our members, so you can watch it on the dashboard and tell people how great it is. We want more people to see this and get this great information. Thank you, everyone.